Welcome back to Talk Green to Me, a podcast about materials and sustainability. This is a follow-up to our discussion on water treatment. So this is episode 21B, interview with Lou Puckett from Atlanta Watershed. Today we have Lou Puckett, uh, the plant manager for the Hemp Hill Water Treatment Facility in Atlanta, and we're going to get to know a lot more about water treatment and how the process is done. So thanks, Lou, for joining us. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? I've been in the water field for about 20 years now. Um, I started out in a small town by the name of Winder, Georgia got a associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree in accounting, studied, got my class three, my class two, my class one, been doing water during the whole time. Learned from a lot of people. There's been a lot of wealth of knowledge shared throughout the years. Um, it's, it's been indeed an honor and a privilege to help in any way I can. So can you tell us a little bit about what the watershed is and what it does? City of Atlanta Watershed, um, we provide high quality drinking water and wastewater services to businesses, residential, as well as wholesale customers, while protecting the urban waterways, conserving natural resources, providing safe, clean water for our downstream customers. What is the region that this watershed serves? Um, How far into the city or out of the city does it go? So we send water through the vast majority of the city. Um, the Hemp Hill Water Treatment Plant provides approximately 65% of the water for the 1.2 million residents of the city. The square mile, you know, there's approximately 3,000 miles of water line. We send water through um, most of the county, various other areas such as Hartsville Jackson Airport, the state capital, and various other places. Amazing to know that there's 3,000 miles of water line beneath us, even though Atlanta's like a couple miles. That's really cool. It's a lot. Um, in addition to the water, there's also wastewater that provides a lot of the reclaimed water for the city. Can you explain the difference to us? Because I, I know I get confused, wastewater versus water treatment facility. There's a big difference in the two. One's totally safe for drinking, and but you know the other one you know, is just cleaning it up and putting it back. But drinking water is the water that you get whenever you turn on a faucet, whenever the fireman hooks up the hose. It's potable drinking water is what we call it. Um, It's safe for human consumption. It's safe for whatever you want to use it for. Versus wastewater is, you know, you're ensuring that the waste, once it's done, is removed. Um, And what you send back out is set forth by the rules set forward by the Environmental Protection Division from the state of Georgia, as well as if you were in another state, their EPD or the EPA. It's useful to know that they are two different systems because I just assumed it was all one big thing. So that is very helpful to know. Where does the water initially come from? So in 
1891, Mayor William Hemphill, who the Hemphill Water Treatment Plant is named after, decided that the city of Atlanta's source of water should come from the Chattahoochee River. It goes to the Chattahoochee plant, then from there it goes to the Hemphill Water Treatment Plant as well as the Bellwood Quarry. Is there a step between the river and the watershed or does it, do you directly source from the river? So that depends on the plants that you're talking about. The Chattahoochee plant gets water straight from the river. Um, hemp pill by way of pumps gets water sent to a large reservoir. Um, the reservoir at Hemp Hill holds approximately 280 million gallons of water, which is relatively speaking on average a four day supply. Um, the water, once it gets to the reservoir, comes into way of the plant, uh, as opposed to where Chattahoochee, it just comes straight into the plant. Also, in addition with Hemp Hill, you have the option to send the water to the Bellwood Rock Quarry, which has been relatively new. Um, the Bellwood Rock Quarry changed to where now, instead of a relatively speaking four to five day water supply, we have on average a 45 to more, possibly 90 day supply of water. It holds 2.4 billion gallons of water. That's amazing. That's a lot of water to just have in store. That's great. The other great thing about that is, is, you know, for example, if there was something like, let's say a drought or various other things in nature, this would allow us to ensure that the citizens sufficient supply of water for the length of time mentioned. Yeah. Is the rock quarry the one um, where the new West side park is? Yes, ma'am. Oh, cool. Okay. It's very pretty over there. I want, it was nice to see all the water. So now it's cool to know where that's coming from and what it's doing. Yeah, my question. So the water that's in the quarry, is that after treatment or before treatment? Before treatment. Okay. Um, so it's raw water. The flow coming out of Hemp Hill in, let's say, February, maybe 40 million gallons a day versus, say, July when it's hot and everybody's using water more often, maybe 80 or 90 million gallons of water a day. So the 45 day holds true even in the heavier times versus you know, it could be up to 90 days in the slower periods of the year. Not too many people are out watering their lawns and things like that in February. So kind of going into the, the actual treatment process, so say your water comes from the Chattahoochee or even the, the, the quarry supply, what are the steps involved in purifying the water and make sure that it can go to businesses and go to residents? So usually there's, most people call it four steps um, and I'll go over them individually. The first one's called coagulation, but I'll, I'll name them all really quick. There's coagulation, flocculation, sedimentation, and filtration. Coagulation is often the first step of water treatment. This is where chemicals with a positive charge are added to the water. The positive charge neutralizes the negative charge of dirt or other dissolved particles in the water. When this occurs, the particles bind together to form a slightly larger particle. The most common chemicals that we use across the entire, not just city of Atlanta, but mostly across the state of Georgia is usually called alum for short. It's usually aluminum sulfate, but other things that can be used are salts or iron, for example. The next step is flocculation. Flocculation is a gentle mixing of the water to make those particles I just talked about bigger and heavier. This is often what we refer to as flock. So it's sort of like taking, let's say a dime, and then you're gonna add another dime to it. At what point do the dimes get so heavy that you can't hold them up anymore? Once they get to a certain weight, 
then it falls out by gravity. The next step is called sedimentation. Most plants across the state of Georgia and most plants do have a sedimentation process. If you ever hear someone talk about direct filtration, this step does not exist. But sedimentation is one of the steps that we use to separate solids out from water. During this process, the flock that I've talked about settles to the bottom of the water because it's heavier than the water itself. Last of the usual four is filtration. Once the flock settles to the bottom of the water, the clear water on top is filtered and additional solids are separated from the water. During filtration, clear water passes through various pore sizes of different materials, such as usually anthracite, charcoal, gravel, or sand. Filters dissolve particles such as germs, chemicals, parasites, viruses, bacteria, etc. Activated carbon is sometimes used to remove bad odors at other plants. Water treatment plants can use a process called ultrafiltration. In addition to this, during ultrafiltration, it goes through what's called membrane filtration. This is making things very, very small, such as you can talk like taking salt out of salt water. And this is usually done in like reverse osmosis plants or whenever you're talking about recycled water. Okay, yeah, so you said that these are typical of all plants. Um, are there any specialized steps used by some places? In addition to the four that I've mentioned, a lot of people typically throw in disinfection. And what disinfection is, is after the water's been filtered, water treatment plants may add one or more chemicals, such as typically chlorine. Some of them use chloramine or chlorine dioxide to remove any remaining parasites, bacteria, or viruses. This keeps the water safe when it travels to homes and businesses. Uh, we make sure that the water has low levels of the disinfectant chosen when it leaves the plant. The remaining disinfection kills all germs that live in the pipes between the water treatment plant and the tap at your home or your business. Some also use UV light or ozone, though they are often rather expensive. Um, one question that, that I had is, you know, you mentioned neutralizing the charge of dirt. Um, what are some other, I guess, contaminants that we're trying to get out of the water? Other things that you're trying to get out of the water is anything that could naturally be coming down the river. You know, for example, let's talk dirt, sticks, anything else, you know, Mother Nature may have thrown in there. Maybe there's a animal up the street on the reservoir that, you know, you want to make sure it doesn't get in there. For example, let's pick Canada geese. You know, you don't want geese in your drinking water or you don't want anything else in your drinking water that could and should rightfully naturally be there, but you don't want it inside the tap in your house. Is there kind of a first step before even maybe the coagulation that can take out these very large things? Correct. So at the Chattahoochee plant, there are screens in the river. Um, at Hemp Hill, there's the reservoir that I mentioned. You know, there's time um, before it ever makes it to us. First of all, it's made it through the Chattahoochee screens. But once it makes it to Hemp Hill, then even at just the reservoir, you've got four or five days worth of time where anything that you're talking about typically falls out by gravity. For example, you could pick the strongest person in the world, whoever she or he may be, and put a five pound bag of sugar in their hand and tell them to hold it for the next four days and you won't be able to. When you're talking about such a time frame, it, it allows more and more of these naturally occurring things to fall out. 
smaller smaller things to filter out. Uh, you were talking about the different membranes. So do microplastics and different types of plastics also get then filtered out? Um, it depends on the plant in question. Um, there are things that um, some plants do to help remove microplastics. Things are such as granular activated carbon when used in addition to the coagulation and flocculation that we talked about earlier helps remove microplastics. In and of themselves, coagulation and flocculation do help remove microplastics. If you want to take it up a notch, then, you know, membrane filtration um, really helps with that as well. Um, DC, Quentin Fletcher and I spoke, this was pre-pandemic, about um, possibly putting in nanofiltration at the hemp hill plant in addition with granular activated carbon. This would help with that as well as a few other things such as disinfection byproducts. And once again, we're just trying to be a smart utility of the future, trying to plan for the next 30, 50 years. These would be things that would help with that. Okay, yeah, that sounds really good. Is there a negative reason that these things don't necessarily always get put in? The downside of the things that we're talking about is, is while it does sound great, there's also a tremendous cost involved. Uh, when you're talking about membrane filtration, most of the time you're going to talk at least hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. Most of the time you're in the high hundreds, if not low billions. So, you know, that's, that's something you got to factor into your budget. And is it a is it like a permanent resource or do you have to swap out the membranes every once in a while? You have to swap out the membranes a fair bit. There's things called membrane fouling. In addition, membranes have a useful life. It's not like you put in membrane filtration now and then it's good for the next 300 years, for example. Right. And you mentioned um, activated charcoal and carbon and alum and a couple of other chemicals. Um, you know, we're really interested in sustainability, so are, are these chemicals sustainably sourced? Is there green chemistry involved? So um, it depends on the chemical that you're talking about as well as the plants that you're talking about. Um, for example, some plants have on-site, um, and I'm going to pick something, chlorine generation. If you're going to talk about alum or um, other chemicals, such as the ones we just mentioned, carbon, um, a lot of the times people try their best to use things that are more reusable and green. That said, once again, it depends on various factors such as cost and the ability for it to be sent. You know, as one thing that I've learned a lot from the pandemic is, is there's been a lot of supply chain shortages. So you have to make sure that be it hospitals, doctors, firemen, et cetera, have water at their disposal. So Sometimes during this pandemic where there's been supply chain concerns, you have to factor in what can you get. While it may be the best in sustainability, if you can't get the product because of a supply chain shortage, then you have to adjust accordingly. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, it'd be nice to be sustainable, but you have to make sure people get water first, usable water. So now. That said, are there other things that are much more, let's use the words reusable and green? Sure there are. Cities are trying their best with cost as well as the environment and thought. You know, anything that we can do to make things more green, such as a lot of plants are looking at putting in solar panels. To, and matter of fact, we are too, to help lower the energy cost. In terms of um, any kind of the dirt and everything that's collected in your facility, what do you do with it? Can that be composted? Can it be recycled? Does it just get 
spit back out into the Chattahoochee River? So for our plan, it depends on what you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about, for example, the sludge, which is where all the flock particles actually end up, um, what happens is it goes across the street to what we call settled solids. From there, it gets treated and it gets used typically for land application. Um, it meets rules set forth by the EPD, EPA, to where it can be used for like fertilizer. Um, the stuff that cannot in other facilities, not mine, um, but let's talk, you know, once again, across the nation, across the globe, typically does have to go into things like landfills or things like that. Other things about the water for us is Hemp Hill does have the ability whenever the water's used for backwashing and things like that, ultimately it goes back up and gets recycled into the reservoir startup process all over again. like the EPA and the, I guess, the Georgia uh, Department of Environmental Protection. Um, how does policy play into all of what you guys do and like setting the different rules and um, limits for, I guess, different parts of the treatment of water? Well, I will speak for Georgia. I can't speak for every other state in the nation. Georgia's EPD has rules that all water plants must adhere to. Um, they are minimums. Um, you're city, county, whatever may decide to make something more stringent, such as the city of Atlanta has. So a lot of times people in the field call it NTU for short, um, but it's Neflo Turbidity Unit. And what it is, is it's a size of dirt. The bigger the dirt, the more chemicals, such as the ones you just mentioned, can hide behind. Um, viruses, protozoas, you get the idea, can all hide behind larger sizes. So what the EPD, which is Georgia's branch of the Environmental Protection Division, says is turbidity has to have a certain point. It's always got to be 0.3 or less 95% of the time, and it can never be above 1.0. At Hemp Hill, as well as Chattahoochee and the other ones across the state, we try our best to not only meet but exceed this requirement set forth by the state. We don't try to hit point three zero, we try to hit point zero three, which is 10 times more stringent. In addition, also the state regulates that the water has to be checked every four hours. Once again, we go forward and we set our rules much more stringent. We check the water every hour on the hour. In addition, there's always online turbidimeters and online equipment that checks it every single second of the day. There are some places that try to, you know, because of cost, factor those things in. You know, the state says we have to do it every four hours. Well, at a smaller municipality, maybe because of lack of staff or lack of budgets, they only do check every four hours or every three hours. Also, conversely, maybe they have a much harder time meeting that 0.3 NTU 95% of the time. So they hit 0.24 as their goal, which is still less than the required minimum set forth by the state, but it's not quite as stringent. But fortunately for us, you know, we have some resources, we have a lot of training, we have a lot of time, and we invest that into all the people in the field. With regards to the actual checking, what does that entail? So for Hemp Hill, um, we check turbidity, 
chlorine, fluoride, phosphate. Um, we check residuals out in the distribution system. Um, we check iron and manganese out in the distribution system. For example, though, in reference to your question, let's, let's pick potassium permanganate, which is a chemical that's used if you have high iron and manganese, typically. Um, fortunately, we don't have that, but um, some plants check for manganese. Um, other things out in the distribution system, such as we always keep a constant eye on how much water pressure there is. In case you've ever seen a boil water advisory, that does not mean that the water's necessarily bad. It just means that somehow, some way along the path, it lost pressure. Could be that, you know, a pump went out or that, you know, there was a rupture in a line, um, not necessarily water plant or water quality related, but the water itself is still good. But what you're doing is you're just ensuring a level of standard. You know that whenever it left the plant, it was good. You know, going out in the distribution system, it met all the rules set forth by the management team of whatever municipality you're talking about. However, once it sits out for so long, if something happens, then that's what you're insuring against. Is all the testing done internally? At City of Atlanta, we have a water quality lab, which is separate from the water treatment plant itself. This allows us to ensure that the quality standards are 100% authentic. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, there's a complete separate level of chain of command. So even though I'm the plant manager at Hemp Hill, I can't question someone's findings if they were from the water lab. Very few places have that, and it's one of the few things that I think really separates the city of Atlanta from other places. That, that makes sense. I also didn't know what the boiled water advisory was for. So again, I'm learning. I'm learning so much. I've Actually, always that... boiled my water when I've gotten those advisories. <laughs> it's not like though. For example, a lot of people typically have the belief that you know something went wrong. Not necessarily something went wrong. A lot of times, it's out of an abundance of caution. For example, maybe there's a lack of pressure for. 10 seconds, doesn't matter. That said, you want to ensure that you know that you're guaranteeing everybody's safety. You know, we are responsible for approximately 1.2 million people. So we take this very seriously. That, what are some common misperceptions that people don't know or think about water treatment or you hear often that are just incorrect, like the boiled water advisory? Oh, there's a lot. Um, you know, short and sweet, a lot of people think, and you, you just take it for granted, you just turn the water on. Um, I'm not touting, but there's a lot of training that goes into be a water treatment operator. You know, it, you have to have a minimum of at least a high school diploma and three years of education in the field and experience. If not, then you have to have what most people call a STEM degree, and then you can still have two years of experience. And then you've got to pass, I would say, the hardest test that I've ever taken. And I have a master's in accounting, so judge that accordingly. But the class one exam is no laughing matter. Um, what kind of things are on the exam? You have to be able to talk about anything across the entire state and be knowledgeable about it. You are what we call a subject matter expert. The other big misperception is, is that it's something simple. It's something you take for granted. As I mentioned earlier, water's always there. 
without the water treatment plant operators, that water doesn't exist. In addition, we take it for granted here, the great quality of water that we have. Take a moment, use Google, look at the other issues that other parts of the world have with water, such as diseases traveling through water. Just a lot happen to make it through. And if you're downstream of somebody who had typhoid fever or hepatitis or a few other things, then all of a sudden you've got these diseases. It, it really shows you the wealth of things that we take for granted where it's just all this is done and it shows how grateful we should be when we look at the world as a whole. Speaking to that, my family's from Pakistan and like when we visit there, it's like I we can't drink the water from the tap at all. We have to get special water from like Nestle. And then when I'm taking a shower, I'm like, oh, got to make sure nothing gets in my mouth. It's like, it's a whole thing. So yeah, I really, really do appreciate how, how amazing it is to get such clean water from our tap or just anywhere in the city. So yep. yeah, I have the same experience. My, my family's also from India. Uh, so we just, it's an extra step and an extra consideration that you have to take in a lot of parts of the world that you don't have to hear, which is nice. Great to know that all the people that are behind this are you know, knowledgeable and able to care for the water system and provide us with like fresh water that we need. It's great. Have you seen any new technologies develop in this area that's able to get you to these minimums or even like, you know, much lower than the minimums that other places might not have? You mentioned some models and stuff, but also like better membranes, stuff like that. Yes, there are some things that help, um, you know, membrane filtration, um, there's ozone, there's granular activated carbon, there's newer media, there's you know, variants of uh, chemicals, but you have to weigh out the cost as well as the feasibility of it. You know, if you start talking about a very small plant where there's many, many fewer people who are paying this, you know, nobody wants to pay a $600 a month water bill. That, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any fun facts that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, a lot of people think about fluoride, and for some reason, fluoride has a bad rap. For those who don't know, in World War II, there was the draft. Fun fact about the draft, in order to serve, you had to have a minimum of six sets of opposing teeth, which is one on top of the other. If you have all 14 sets of, that most people normally have, or 32 if you still have all, if you have your wisdom teeth, for there to be six of them, that means you've lost more than half of your teeth, one on top of the other. Approximately 10% of the people who did not get drafted in the war was due to this. Now, it's a little unique, but here goes the story about that. They found out during the draft that people from Colorado, not only did they have six sets of opposing teeth, but nearly almost all of them had all their teeth. And they started figuring out why. It was because of what's called Colorado brown stain. And what happens is, is there was so much natural fluoride in the water that it caused their teeth to turn a little brown. But not only did they have all their teeth, there was no cavities, no nothing. So in light of that, they started adding fluoride to drinking water, which is why now almost everybody has most of their teeth. And while there are things such as somebody will say, well, hey, there's fluoride in toothpaste. 
often tell people to think about we are responsible for everybody's health, not just the wealthy, whether you're the poorest person in the entire drinking water area or the wealthiest. We make sure the water has minimum standards, and these are one of those standards, which is why a lot of people now into their 60s, 70s, and even 80s still have a vast majority of their teeth. My grandfather, who passed away even though he was 87, still had approximately 80% of his natural teeth. It's one of the things that we've come to learn that's a little fun fact of why there's fluoride in drinking water now. Is there anything else you want people to know uh, maybe something specific about the water in Atlanta? The city of Atlanta has received more awards than any other plant I have ever worked at. We've received the GAWP, which is the Georgia Association of Water Professionals Gold Award for more than 10 years in a row. Uh, we've received the GAWP Platinum Award. We've had people receive Top Operators of the Year awards. And two or three things to make you feel exceptionally well about the city of Atlanta is in 2017. In 2017, the city of Atlanta won the Better Buildings Challenge. We got the MVP award. And if you've ever seen the Builder Buildings Challenge, this is usually on like HGTV, where the city of Atlanta competed against major other cities and it won outright. In addition, one of the things y'all talked about earlier in this was um, being sustainable. In 2019, the City of Atlanta won the Better Buildings Challenge Energy Reduction Award against all other municipalities as well. Those are a few little fun facts. I feel great about my drinking water now, so thank you. <laughs> really, really proud of our city and what all we do. We're like a symbol of pride. So. Well, we really appreciate your time. Um, this has been very informative, and we enjoyed learning kind of all about the different things that are involved in treating and going from the river to our taps. If there's anything else you'd like to share just for our general audience, please feel free. I would say one little thing for everybody else. Um, Pre-pandemic, we always were honored and I, I love doing it actually. We gave tours of the plant. Um, so, you know, come out every year. We Pre-pandemic, we had what was called the annual um, trick or treatment tour where we would actually on our clear well have a movie and give a tour of the plant as well as some information and then let people sit out back and watch movie um, every year. But in light of the pandemic, we recorded a video. We still have a virtual tour to where we can show people the plant and all the things that I've described here in this podcast. People can sign up with our and ask for a virtual tour or assuming the pandemic restrictions go away, come by in person with advance notice, of course, and get a, get a tour of the plant. Thank you so much. That is very helpful and sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Lou. It's been such a pleasure. Um, we learned so much, but have a wonderful day. Y'all have a great day too. See you. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGTM Podcast, or you can email us at talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com. 